Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Adam Tenforti. Adam is the Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Harvard Medical School. He is a sports medicine physician and a running specialist and a specialist in bone. So today our topic is all about bone. So welcome to the podcast, Adam. Well, thanks for having me, Liz. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm super excited to be able to talk to you about this special passion of yours. But before we start, can you tell us about your background and how you got into sports medicine? Yeah, I, I'm happy to share a little bit about my perspective. And, and that that is serving as a, a student athlete. Uh, at Stanford, where I was part of a number of national championship teams. My specialty was more in the longer distances, 5,000, 10,000 meter. Mm-hmm. And I had my share of running related injuries. Fortunately, I was spared from any major injuries to bone, such as a bone stress injury or stress fracture. But a number of athletes that I knew that were friends with me or that were part of the greater running community were afflicted with this injury. When I started medical school at Stanford, I was very interested in exploring ways that I could serve the running community and endurance athletes. And I landed on the specialty of physical medicine and rehabilitation because I learned that my team physician, Dr. Michael Fredrickson at Stanford, was and currently is a physiatrist. So when I started looking for ways to establish myself in the field and and serve the needs of runners, I was approached by Dr. Fredrickson about the opportunity to work on a study that that I ended up essentially serving as the lead in, in coordinating and recruiting high school runners. And our goal was to understand modifiable risk factors for stress fractures. Mm-hmm. And in the process of of doing this research, we learned that there were certain sports and we'll get into this, I'm sure, later, that involve high-impact multidirectional loading and seem to prevent development of bone stress injury when athletes transitioned over to long-distance running. Mm -hmm. But another aspect of of that discovery process for me was learning about a number of, of issues that can contribute to impaired bone health learning more about the concept of the female and male athlete triad, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as later terminology of relative energy deficiency in sport, or RED-S. I was able to then expand that type of work during my residency and fellowship at Stanford, understanding these forms of injury in collegiate athletes. But in that process, I also had the great uh, pleasure to to get to know Dr. Sherry Blauet, who mm-hmm. uh, overlapped with me at Stanford, actually really inspired me during my time when I was was looking at medical schools and hearing about the fact that she was this multi-time Paralympic athlete, winning gold medals, you know, representing the United States. And as she was going through her residency and sports fellowship training, and we were talking about our common interests. We realized that in in the in the para athlete that there were a lot of issues that were not being fully addressed and mm-hmm. and Liz just to recognize how um, you've contributed to that work we were able to explore together what is the current literature that allows us to understand how bone health might be impaired in the para athlete 
and how can we best advocate for future research directions and to improve current clinical practice? Mm. Yeah, and that was that was a great collaboration, and I see that you've been continuing to do a lot of work in that area. So I guess start us off by let's get back to the simple basics of what is bone and what do we mean by the term bone density? Yeah, so you know, one thing that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is the fact that bone is this metabolically active tissue. Mm. And, you know, it really serves such a larger role than just being a scaffold for the skeleton, Mm -hmm. uh, but also is is something that dynamically changes and responds to uh, changes in weight bearing status, or if someone develops a neurological or other musculoskeletal impairment and has to reduce the amount of time that they spend weight bearing through a bone, the bone will change in its strength and its composition. So when we when we get to the principles that influence uh, bone density, we really are left with, with two principles that I think are important to understand. The first is Wolf's Law, which really describes the fact that the bone responds dynamically to, to changes in load. Mm-hmm. And then the second is the muscle bone unit theory, which describes that outside of trauma, the, the stresses from muscle and tendon directly to bone lead to some of the greatest gains in bone strength, especially during times of adolescence and reaching peak bone health. Mm-hmm. So when we refer to the concept of bone density, Bone density is really a proxy for bone strength, and it's an imperfect science, but when we define someone as having regular bone density, we're we're trying to understand what is a two-dimensional scan from x-ray that we get Mm -hmm. through the use of a dual energy x-ray absorptiometry scan or a DEXA. We're understanding from a two-dimensional construct a prediction of how uh, dense the bone is, and the density has been used as a proxy for bone strength, uh, mm-hmm. while recognizing that's imperfect. And you can then define someone's bone density compared to individuals of your age, of your gender, of your ethnicity, and and compare those values so that you get an appropriate uh, match comparison. And if bone density is within normal range, then you have a lower concern about issues such as development of a bone stress injury. Whereas if bone density is lower than someone's peers, we start to get different definitions. Those definitions include the concept of low bone mass for age, which again has been defined in physically active individuals who spend time doing weight-bearing sport as a bone mineral density or a bone mineral composition Z-score below negative 1.0. We also will hear the term osteopenia and osteoporosis, which refer to T-scores, not Z-scores. And those T-scores are used, again, to stratify as individuals either having osteopenia or osteoporosis, which are diseases that we typically think of in, in older individuals due to the fact that once we reach our peak bone density, usually in our third decade of life, there's a gradual decline in bone density over time until the end of life. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so bone density itself changes over time. So it's probably, as you say, it kind of peaks in and starts to decline in the 30s. 
Um, so peaks in the 20s, declines in the 30s. And obviously through growth and development, like through teenage years, that's a rapid time of building bone density, would you say? Absolutely. So that's one of the reasons why we talk about almost this critical window that's been defined by, by McKelvey and others as being the time around puberty in, in boys and girls where, you know, in that two-year window around puberty, about 26% of final bone mass is attained. Mm. And if you broaden that to a four-year a four window, it's nearly 40% of bone density. is mm-hmm. So linking this back to the para-athlete, you know, first off, if someone has had a a neurological injury or some form of musculoskeletal injury at a younger age that affects their weight bearing, there's there's a high likelihood that their bone density is going to be lower than their peers. Mm-hmm. And, and we also recognize, though, that even if someone has reached their peak bone mass and develops um, a neurological impairment such as a spinal cord injury, that there will be a rapid change in bone density and bone loss. Mm-hmm. And that, that's due to many reasons, including the loss of those weight-bearing gravitational forces that act on bone to maintain bone strength. Another way of thinking about this in individuals without a neurological impairment is you can think about what happens when astronauts go to space. Mm-hmm. They're essentially in a hypogravity environment and what, what's been learned through uh, spaceflight, and this has even been published on, what, what, what can we learn from, from spaceflight about, about bone density, is that when individuals come back from being in space, they essentially have, at some, at some level, osteoporosis or mm. something that approaches them. So there, there are gradual weight-bearing paradigms that have been introduced or even efforts in space to keep individuals physically exercising, again, loading those tendons through muscle activation to try to attenuate this bone loss. Mm-hmm. And was that successful? So partially. I'll, I'll be honest, this is not, not my, my primary area of, of knowledge, but what, what's interesting is to see how this has been a really important aspect of understanding how we provide the best care for those who engage in space travel. And it also, I think, is a nice way of illustrating if you think about someone who develops an acute neurological injury from, say, a brain injury or spinal cord injury, and they maybe have muscle loss, weight-bearing restrictions, this would help to understand why why an individual who undergoes this and subsequently discovers the wonderful, you know, parasports might still have lower bone density than where they were before mm-hmm. they're in. Yeah. And, and I guess that was part of my question is if, if an athlete, a para-athlete has low bone density, and we also know that amputees, lower limb amputees are also at higher risk on their amputee side because of that change in load bearing and the lack of muscle. They tend to have lower bone density, particularly in the hip. Is it recoverable? Like, is there some way that we can get that back? Or is it the fact that we just got a slow further progression? So the reality is, that there have been research studies looking at certain medications, for example, the use of uh, bisphosphonates, which were oftentimes prescribed to older adults that have osteoporosis, 
And it's been explored whether that can prevent this bone loss. Unfortunately, there have not been any clear medical therapies to reverse to or to fully reverse the bone loss that occurs after a neurological injury. Mm. So really what we're left with is thinking about ways to, one, provide appropriate weight bearing. So mm. for example, we'll see you know the use of standing frames or we'll, yep. we'll see other ways of trying to introduce those gravitational forces. We think about optimizing muscle strength because mm-hmm. again, if someone has greater muscle strength, in some ways that may directly or indirectly load the bone, but it also protects that scaffold to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, you could theoretically create a construct around that. Yeah. That's also why we think spasticity in some ways could actually mm-hmm. be a little bit osteoprotective. That's been one of the one of the benefits that we think of with spasticity is that if the spasticity is not impairing someone's function or quality of life, spasticity may have some adaptive benefits, at least in in the muscles that are surrounding the bone that doesn't have as much uh, load to essentially work as as a protective mechanism. Mm. So so that's also though why parasports are so critically important in individuals that sustain a neurological impairment or some other form of impairment that affects physical function. And that's Mm -hmm. why parasports are so incredibly important to support and to identify ways to move uh, sports medicine forward in this discipline. Absolutely. And I guess I've had some athletes who say, well, you know, I have a spinal cord injury. I don't really need good bone density in my lower limbs. So what is the concern if their bone density is low? So it's a good question. I think one of the concerns is that even if someone is not actively using their lower limbs, the lower limbs still are critically important for other aspects of health, might affect their ability to transfer correctly. And certainly with those bones getting weaker, there can be trauma to the lower limbs, which then would place the individual at an elevated risk for a fracture. Now, these fractures may not heal as predictably as someone who has higher bone density or has the ability to do some weight bearing through the injured bone when it's appropriate to stimulate healing response. So this can create a lot of issues for individuals in terms of their long-term health. And of course, there can be complications immediately after a fracture such as blood clot or other forms of embolism. So that's why these fractures shouldn't really be shrugged off. They're really important. But you also bring up another interesting point, which is, well, okay, if it preferentially affects the lower extremity, do we understand something about where these bone injuries actually occur? And some of the work that we collaborated on together, we were discovering that these these injuries that we see in the para-athlete appear to happen more in the upper extremity than we see in a lot of a lot of other athletes. Mm-hmm. And that intuitively makes sense because essentially the upper extremities are being used not only for mobility, but they're also then going to be disproportionately utilized for a lot of the adaptive sports that are mm-hmm. part of the sports movement. So we start to see some very interesting injuries involving the upper extremity, including the hands. 
And so again, even if the bone density isn't necessarily impaired in those bones that are being utilized, this speaks to the importance of understanding ways that we can optimize bone health in this population and and strategies to reduce the risk of future injury. Yeah, absolutely. And so can we kind of go to to that and also talk a little bit about bone stress injuries? Because even with some para-athletes, like visual impaired athletes and those with milder forms of CP, for example, they can still be at risk of a bone stress injury. And so what what is that as, a, as opposed to a fracture? And what may cause that in athletes? Absolutely. And when I when we were earlier discussing this topic, I referred to bone stress injury and also to, referred to stress fracture. And the reason why this terminology is important is that there's a lot of confusion about what this injury is. So the the preferred terminology that that we're proposing now in the sports medicine community, and I believe should apply to all athletes, including mm-hmm. parasport athletes is a concept of bone stress injury. And so bone stress injury represents an overuse injury to bone where the bone is failing to keep up with the demands. Mm -hmm. And over time, that leads to localized areas of accelerated bone remodeling. But that essentially creates further weakness during that remodeling phase so that Mm -hmm. if that bone continues to be loaded, that bone stress injury is thought to progress and can develop into a coalescence of these microtrauma and repair uh, known as stress fracture. Mm-hmm. Stress fractures, again, represent an actual micro crack in the bone, but the concern is that, that if those aren't recognized, then the bone continues to fail and that can lead to a full fracture. Mm-hmm. So bone stress injuries can occur in, in bone that is of normal density but sees excessive load that the musculoskeletal system can't keep up with. Mm-hmm. It can also occur in individuals with lower bone density where the bone is already weaker to begin with. So in theory, the amount of load that's applied to that bone may not need to be quite as high to lead to localized failure. Mm-hmm. And this is in contrast to the concept of a traumatic fracture. So we also need to recognize that, as, as discussed earlier, a para-athlete can sustain an overuse injury to bone, which I like to use the terminology bone stress injury, but mm-hmm. sometimes you also just need to use terminologies that are more familiar to the athlete, including stress reaction being a lower grade bone injury or a stress fracture where there's actually presence of fracture line. These injuries are different than a traumatic fracture. And and those fractures can occur because the bone is weaker and there's one supramaximal force applied to the bone where the bone can't keep up with that demand leading to a cortical injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's really kind of the key delineation. But both injuries are important to recognize and ensure there's appropriate treatment. Mm-hmm. What are some of the symptoms that an athlete may experience if they had one of the anything other than a you know obviously a, a major traumatic fracture? Most people will know that because there's a fair bit of pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but, and, and sometimes they do, but we also need to recognize that we should be at a heightened concern about issues related to bone in the parasport athlete. So mm-hmm. in some cases, we recognize that individuals have sensory impairments where they may not experience pain the same way that you and I uh, Mm. experience 
pain. So that's one that's one thing that I think is a really important takeaway for helping to advocate for the para-athlete. The second is recognizing these bone injuries occur in different locations. And so the mm-hmm. presentation of bone injury is typically pain. Yep. That pain typically progresses with activity as opposed to having a warm-up effect, which we see in soft tissue injuries, such as a tendon overuse injury, where the tendon feels stiff, and then you get going, you get a little blood flow, and then, and then, and then the tissue feels gradually better as you go. Bone mm-hmm. typically has more of a crescendo effect where the longer you stress the, the affected bone and surrounding tissue, the worse the pain becomes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll see swelling. Sometimes you'll see skin changes. Oftentimes, though, it's more of focal pain. So, you know, pushing on one, one aspect of the bone and, and feeling the pain there as opposed to more diffuse pain, like, hey, my, my entire forearm hurts and mm-hmm. there's a lot of pain over the soft tissue. So you might have pain when you press on the bone. So what we call tenderness to palpation, you may have pain when you tap on the bone. We refer mm-hmm. to that as a percussion. And you may have activity when you directly stress the bone, such as doing something called a fulcrum test, where you're essentially creating a focal stress to the area of maximal pain and applying a, a gentle bending moment. And if that provokes pain in a long bone, you should also be concerned about a possible bone injury. And again, each of these tests are imperfect. Individuals need to use good clinical judgment. I'm not advocating for people <laughs> pushing on their bones all, all the time. Because <laughs> I've had athletes do that when they're recovering from a bone injury, and it can be very challenging to be objective. But mm. sometimes when there's an injury, again, it's also looking at the at the contralateral side. And it's like, yeah, it actually does hurt a lot more over this area than it does on the other side. Yeah. So those are the clinical features. Now, the way that I believe is the gold standard for diagnosing this injury is through imaging. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple of options. The first is what is typically recommended for initial evaluation of an injury to bone, which is a plain radiograph. Right. Those have the advantage of being easier to obtain, uh, less expense. But the downside is they do involve a small amount of ionizing radiation. Again, not not necessarily a big concern, but something we need to be careful about and at least thoughtful when we get an x-ray. And then the other concern is there's a high rate of false negatives, which means mm-hmm. that the x-ray can look normal. And it's been reported in you know, in runners and, and other land-based athletes, uh, x-rays can be negative 85 to 90% of the time, particularly mm. if x-ray is obtained within the first few weeks of an injury. Gosh. So what we're then left with is trying to have other studies that might show the changes to bone that the x-ray is not showing. And the features we usually see with the stress fracture or cortical break, or we'll see essentially the the remodeling response. So essentially a sign that the body is increasing the bone turnover, which might appear white. And then mm-hmm. the absence of, of that bone turnover might be the site of where the fracture is, where the body is actively working to repair. So what we typically think of as a gold standard for diagnosing a bone stress injury is MRI. Right. Okay. So MRI uses uh, uses uh, magnetic fields. Um, it's it's a form of non-ionizing radiation. 
And what that can do is look for changes in the bone. Those changes early on when someone has a low-grade bone injury, which is commonly referred to as a stress reaction, are increases in bone edema. And that bone edema needs to correspond with the area of pain for it to be a true bone injury. So mm -hmm. that's the downside. With The upside is it's very sensitive for picking up a bone injury. It can help us to grade the severity of the injury. It lets us look at the soft tissue. So if we don't see a bone injury, it may also give us an alternative explanation for what's causing the pain. Mm -hmm. But the downside is that it can create false positives. It's also more expensive than an x-ray. So what I think is really important is to ensure that when I'm taking care of an individual, whether that is, you know, a runner or a para-athlete, is making sure that I'm able to advocate effectively. And that's having knowledge in what the injury might be and being yep. able to advocate for an MRI, particularly if this is a bone that's at a high risk for taking time to heal. Mm. Or if we think about the para-athlete, if this is affecting, you know, critical function of their hands mm. or their forearms or their shoulders, you know, missing this injury and having prolonged time to recovery can really be detrimental, not only to participation in sport, but to overall health and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And so what is the treatment if someone has a, a form of bone injury? So we've, we've published on this topic, the way that I like to break it down is to think about it in three phases. The first is a protective phase. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to be in a cast where the muscles will also get weaker, but it does mean offloading the bone. Um, mm. So in some cases, that is a splint. In some cases, that is that is a boot or some other way to keep the bone from, from taking on abnormal stress that's going to prevent the bone from coming down. So that first phase is really around protecting the bone to allow the bone to catch up in the healing response and to achieve a pain-free status. Yep. The second phase I look at is being the rehabilitation phase where you're then able to gradually reload the bone doing structured rehabilitation exercise. The third phase is the return to sport. And that really follows a cycle of loading with recovery. Mm -hmm. All three phases need to be done pain-free because that's been shown to be the greatest predictor for healing and for reducing the risk of prolonged time for the bone to recover or a failure for the bone to heal. Mm -hmm. And do you implement any nutritional components around that recovery? Like, for example, do you look at vitamin D, calcium? I mean, I've got to go back to the fact that this is a power sports nutrition podcast. So absolutely. <laughs> I, I love to bend this in in a number of facets. So it doesn't matter whether whether you're an adaptive sport athlete or a runner who comes in to see me in clinic. We have to think about the biomechanical stresses, the sports mm -hmm the activity that are being applied to that bone to recognize what might have caused the injury. Yep. We need to also be intellectually curious, though, about all of the other factors from a nutritional standpoint. So getting back to the earlier topic of the concept of the female and male athlete triad and relative energy deficiency in sport, mm -hmm. really what we're defining is that if the athlete is in a low energy availability state, which means that their energy intake is not sufficient to meet the amount of exercise energy that they're expending, 
standardized to uh, metabolically active tissue. So we, we say uh, that's uh, kcals per kilogram of fat-free mass per day. At lower values, what we see in women is that menstrual periods become more irregular or they stop. That's referred to as oligomenorrhea or a cessation of menses for at least three months, amenorrhea. In men, it's a little bit more challenging to detect, but we like to screen for symptoms of, uh, of hypogonadal state. So mm-hmm. signs where testosterone level is lower, and oftentimes that will um, affect libido, morning erection, it affects muscle mass, but, but those hormones are very important signalers to ensure that the bone will promote an anabolic response for recovering from an injury and also important for secondary prevention because we want those signals taking place to actively keep the bone density higher. Mm-hmm. Now, outside of nutrition, we also think about some of the basic components of bone. That includes calcium. And again, I don't think there have been sufficient studies in the para-athlete population, but in runners, which is a population that's at a very high risk for these forms of injury, we believe that food, particularly food rich in calcium, such as milk, might help to, pro- might help to promote bone healing and also prevent mm-hmm. future injuries. So one study in, um, in female runners ages 17 to 26 identified that every cup of milk consumed reduced the risk of a future stress fracture by 62%. Wow. And so I really focus on calcium from, from food. I think Mm -hmm. we need to be thoughtful about this. Uh, I'm not saying more is better, particularly for para-athletes such as those with spinal cord injury. We want to avoid concerns about creating uh, hypercalciuria, which could lead to to kidney stones and and other complications. But ensuring that the athlete at least understands the Institute of Medicine guidelines for calcium intake, Mm -hmm. which again, in adults, uh, premenopausal women and uh, younger men, by adulthood is is typically recommended at a thousand milligrams a day. Yep. In uh, women that are breastfeeding, it's twelve hundred milligrams, and then for women that have reached menopause or for older men, it's twelve hundred milligrams. Mm-hmm. Um, and those needs might be different depending on if someone has a history of bone injury or has other concerns around maintaining normal calcium homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Vitamin D is the second uh, signaler. So it's a pro-hormone, 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Um, And it's something that we we will measure in in the blood. There's not a magic number, but a lot of individuals, particularly with spinal cord injury, have been found to have vitamin D insufficiency, which is defined as a vitamin D level typically below 30. Uh, and vitamin D deficiency is typically defined as a vitamin D level below 20. Yep. So vitamin D status, it's not just good enough to be basking in the sun. There's so many different aspects around bioconversion to active vitamin D from UV light. There are changes as we age where there's less peripheral conversion to active vitamin D. So this is one area where I recommend vitamin D supplementation, at least a thousand international units per day. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, particularly for those that are vitamin D insufficient or deficient, um, I will supplement more aggressively with a goal to get above 30. A third element that I think is really important for athletes, particularly parasport athletes that are participating in endurance sports is iron. And iron is is something that can be very challenging. We 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 don't have a, 
a clear answer why iron deficiency occurs um, in endurance athletes. Uh, there are a number of different uh, theories in terms of how well it's absorbed in the gut. In women, you know, the short answer is that menstruation is a source of iron loss. Mm -hmm. uh, but regardless of the mechanism, we want individuals to have a serum ferritin level in an adequate range because that represents bioavailable iron that can be used to create red blood cells. But we also recognize that iron has different effects on enzymatic pathways. Over 200 enzymatic pathways rely on iron. Nice. So we've done some research in, again, uh, collegiate athletes finding that individuals that had a history of low iron status with or without anemia. So again, you can have iron deficiency anemia, or you can have iron deficiency without anemia. So iron deficiency, non-anemia. Those individuals seem to have a greater uh, likelihood of having triad risk factor. Nice. So again, are the, are the eating behaviors affecting the relative absorption of iron? Are there behaviors around the foods that are being eaten where the foods are less rich in, in iron? And, and iron we really get from, from, the, from the blood of, of the food we eat. So if you're not eating red meat, uh, while I, I have no qualms with individuals being vegetarian or vegan, you need to be very careful and you need to have some aggressive supplementation strategy. And then we also, getting back to the foods that are rich in calcium, they're oftentimes fortified in vitamin D, they have phosphorus, vitamin K, those are all components that we need to think about ensuring that athletes have a well-balanced diet. So in summary, well-balanced diet, adequate energy availability, and supplementation, I think is appropriate for vitamin D yep. and in individuals that have that have had previous blood tests showing they have low iron, um, it's reasonable to consider iron supplementation. One wow. word of caution for those listening in is that there is a condition of iron storage disease, which, which is referred to as hemochromatosis. Mm -hmm. So iron supplementation really does require seeing a physician or a dietitian or someone who is able to ensure that these blood tests are performed and reviewed to ensure that people are not carriers or people actively with an iron storage disease, because again, you can have too much of a good thing. And that includes yeah. iron. Yeah, absolutely. And to follow that up, we actually have podcast recordings that are on this podcast. Podcast 49 is on vitamin D, podcast 44 is low energy availability, and podcast 29 is on iron. So we have covered those topics in a fair bit of detail, and so you can refer back to those podcasts as well. But that's a great summary. Thanks, Adam. So from here, do you think we should screen para-athletes for their bone density? And when and how often do you think we should do that? Well, my personal opinion is that it's better to get screening tests if they can change management. Mm -hmm. So in athletes, particularly runners that I'll common, commonly see in clinic, I'll use the criteria for who should get a DEXA. And at least in female athletes, it's been suggested that if they have two moderate or one high risk uh, triad factor using the cumulative risk assessment scoring, they should have a DEXA scan. Mm -hmm. There are criteria from the International Society of Clinical Densiometry 
that also describe criteria such as a vertebral compression fracture or multiple long bone fractures where a DEXA would be recommended. Yeah. I think for I think for para athletes, a DEXA is reasonable to consider. However, it's also important to have a team. So that mm-hmm. includes a sports dietitian who can help then to identify strategies around improving bone density. It might involve a sports medicine physician such as myself, who is familiar with how to interpret a DEXA correctly mm-hmm. to consider alternative explanations outside of the low energy availability state that can affect bone density, such as issues around kidney disease or other forms of malabsorption. Mm -hmm. In individuals that display disordered eating, it includes mental health providers because, again, it's really a team-based approach to identifying ways to help optimize bone, bone health. And oftentimes, the presenting feature for those that have impaired bone health is development of a bone injury. So I don't think there's been, you know, clear, clear guidelines on when to get a DEXA scan in a para-athlete. I do think that it's reasonable to consider in any athlete, particularly those that are, that are doing repetitive, repetitive activity sports or that have had a bone injury to get a DEXA. But then the important thing is to recognize that bone, low bone density is very common, mm-hmm. particularly in those with more complete spinal cord injuries. So then getting that information and having a constructive way to act on the information is the most important follow-up uh, decision once a DEXA is obtained. Mm-hmm. And in terms of prevention of bone injuries you, you we you know we've talked about making sure that you've got adequate energy availability you know obviously adequate vitamin d calcium weight bearing but you also mentioned early on the multi-directional exercise and how protective that appears to have been in younger you know prior to be, being a runner in in younger athletes so can we talk a little bit about that absolutely so Again, you know, sometimes in in para-athletes, we need to get a little more creative, you know, at the very least doing some form of weight bearing, whether that's, you know, getting up in in a standing frame in individuals that might have an incomplete spinal cord injury or have some some degree of of strength and ability to ambulate, continuing Mm -hmm. to encourage uh, ambulation and weight bearing. There there are also some, some other, you know, arenas that are being explored, such as the use of FES, uh, so Mm -hmm. functional electrical stimulation, where the muscles are given a little bit of an electrical stimuli to start the motion, such as FES rowing, where then you're applying stress through through the bone via the muscle. Mm-hmm. So I really, I really think this is an area that's ripe for exploration and really finding ways that we can advocate for the para-athlete. Another topic, though, that we, we didn't discuss is sleep. Mm-hmm. I think we're missing this. Um, okay. We know that sleep affects a number of metabolic factors. We're hungrier when we're tired. I mean, mm-hmm. it affects a number of cell signaling pathways, but it's also been shown that individuals that are sleep deprived can rapidly lose bone density. Wow. In fact, in a military investigation, they did a, a one a one week trial where they measured bone density pre and post individuals either being forced to sleep upright in a chair or being sleep mm-hmm. deprived for 62 hours and compared those to people that did a more traditional um, 
horizontal sleeping. And what they found is that about 40% of those in the sleep-deprived state would lose the equivalent of one standard deviation of bone density. So this brings me back to the exact same thing I would tell I would tell a runner who did not have an underlying movement or neurological impairment, which is you got to sleep. So (laughs) if you're recovering from an injury, you can't expect your body to heal. If you're waking up earlier to cross train or you're getting super stressed about this and you're not finding outlets and it's affecting your sleep quality. Mm. And, and these, this is so, so often overlooked and again, becomes another opportunity for para-athletes to make sure that they have good sleep, they sh- you should feel well-rested, you shouldn't be snoring in the middle of the night, you shouldn't be waking up with a headache. I mean, there are you know a number of, of things, including sleep apnea, that we're probably under-recognizing in, mm. in individuals can affect those with neurological impairments, um, including those with, with a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. So ensuring that people have good sleep quality and are being screened for sleep disorders if if they feel like they're doing the right things from a behavioral standpoint to to sleep and they're not rested that's also a really important domain to explore wow fascinating and we also have a podcast on sleep and that's podcast number 13 so (laughs) if you want to know more about that (laughs) I, i love it i love it uh, cross, cross-referencing as it's best. Wow, lots of information there, Adam. So can you try and sum up in a nutshell what your recommendations to para-athletes and para-coaches and, and practitioners would be? Absolutely. First off, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm-hmm. So for those who are not dealing with a bone injury or have had a history of bone injury, the most important things to focus on are behavioral lifestyle factors. That includes optimizing nutritional intake, energy availability, ensuring that individuals are hitting the Institute recommendations for the key macronutrients for Mm -hmm. calcium, consideration for vitamin D and iron supplementation, Mm -hmm. ensuring that individuals uh, are doing weight-bearing activities and are, are maintaining strong limbs and using muscles effectively to protect bone from injury, but also to load bone Mm -hmm. and getting excellent sleep. For those individuals who are increasing their activity or have developed pain, particularly pain localized to a specific area of bone or are at a heightened concern that they may have sustained some form of trauma, it's important to advocate for yourself and to have others advocate for you to get an x-ray. And if there is still a concern, particularly if it's, if it's an area which is really limiting function, these are the cases where I think an MRI can be particularly useful. Mm-hmm. When that injury is managed, it needs to be managed the way that we would manage any athlete with an overuse injury to bone. Protecting the area, doing structured rehabilitation, Yes, physical therapy, occupational therapy, other ways to strengthen those tissues and a gradual return to sport, all while doing these activities without pain. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, what I, what I think is really important for the general population, for everyone, whether, whether we're talking about uh, sports or, or para, para-athletics, is we should be advocating for physical activity because it's important for our physical health and our mental health. And that's why this work is so important that you're doing, Liz. And I'm really 
pleased that I was able to uh, contribute to this podcast. And I'm super impressed by the fact that you are practicing what you preach and standing for the entire recording of this podcast and even doing a little bit of squat exercises as you go. So you're looking after your own bone density on the way. And my musculoskeletal health. (laughs) There's something to be said for for standing and for moving throughout the day. So um, that's, that's the final word, which is, you know, keep moving. Think, think about all of the different stresses that, that are applied to the bones and to the musculoskeletal system. And that includes the overuse injuries that we sustain when we, when we work and do repetitive activities. And, and some kind of, sometimes that is, that is sitting. You know, it's mm-hmm. nice to change positions and move. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, so much information. I think it's going to take a few listens to this podcast for people to kind of gather gather all of that up. One last question before we let you go, though, because no one gets away without answering this one. What's your favorite food? Well, I'm about to have dinner with my family after going to a couple of conferences in the last week. I'm I'm going to vote for chicken parmesan. <laughs> I, homemade, I preferably, or oh, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with homemade cooking and and having strategies around food, but sometimes it's also just about the social act of of um, being being with others that you love and care about. So I'm just excited to go out and have a nice meal with my family after after I go for a short run. <laughs> Oh man, you're you're over. It's all true, Liz. I, this, <laughs> this isn't this isn't staged. This is this is what I planned for tonight. Uh, and, practice what you preach have, at its best. <laughs> and I have a support network. I I have a wife who you know she'll she'll look at me and say, "Hey, you need to go for a run." Right. So that's, that's important. We yeah. we we do need to practice what we preach. We're not always going to be perfect. But just remember the importance of all these lifestyle factors. It affects your physical health, your mental health, and it's certainly going to help with your bone your bone health Absolutely. as well. Yep. Fantastic. On that note, we will let you go for your run and then enjoy your meal. So thank you so much for your time, Adam. It's been fantastic talking to you and I really appreciate all the work that you've done. Well, thanks for having me. Adam's done a great job of covering all aspects related to bone density and I would agree I think it's a good idea for para-athletes especially those at higher risk of low bone density such as individuals with spinal cord injury, muscle weakness and amputations at least lower limb to get some assessment of their bone density or their risk factors for low bone density and while you may not be able to make huge inroads into increasing that bone density again you can at least prevent further losses and make sure that you're aware of things to protect your bone i hope you've enjoyed this podcast if you have any feedback please leave it on our website and i hope you share it with your social media please join us next time when we talk to ricardo costa about all things related to exercise and the gut and what factors can impact on gut function and gut symptoms.